Uh, you can grab your Bible and open up to the book of Genesis, and we're moving in back into Genesis chapter 44. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking from the front here towards the back, and you can slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure our Bible gets across to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word to be able to follow along with us, but we also want you to be able to take this home. It's our gift for you today. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, let's take it, read it. We trust that God will speak to you through it. Well, we're jumping back into uh, where we left off last week, which is in the middle of um, a story, really, a story about a family who is in process of being reconciled to one another and really being reconciled to God. It's really a a message about change, the way God has the power to change us and transform us. And I I thought it would be good to kind of just contemplate for a minute the reality of change. I think change is an important concept in life, and uh, um, I'm, for one, am, am somewhat thankful for change. I know some of us struggle with change, right? Some of us are creatures of habit. We kind of like the routines of our lives. We just like things to stay the same. And that's great, but it's really not possible, at least for very long. Change is inevitable in life. I'm really thankful, for example, that the past few days we got a taste of uh, spring that's coming, right? Or summer, almost. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that change from winter to spring. I, I love that change. I love how the seasons change. But I think we can look around us and there's change everywhere. One of the things I, I'm kind of growing to appreciate as I get older is how change um, really is about coming back to what was already done, right? So we, we can see the changes, for example, in hairstyles, right, where people think they're getting new and original, but it's like, yeah, we did that 20 years ago. That's the exact same thing. Styles are coming back around, clothing styles, right? Our kids are now wearing the same clothes we wore back in the 90s. That's right, kids. We were cool once, too. Yeah. Change is a reality in life. It's inevitable. It's, it's undeniable. You can't avoid it. But, but when we think about change, I wonder how often we think about people. I wonder how often you think about yourself or those in your life. Do you really consider, is it possible for people to really change? Perhaps, uh, maybe you were younger at one point and you had friends. We often hear this in kind of a younger people. They just love their friends so much and they'll say things like this. Don't ever change. What a horrific thing to say to a 16-year-old. Or, or, that's <laughs> I did it. I was trying to get you. That was good. Or maybe, maybe we've been on the receiving end or maybe the giving end of a statement like this, you'll never change. Is it really possible for you and for others to change for the better, to be transformed truly from the inside out, to become somebody different, somebody better No matter your age or no matter your stage of life, I want you to hear this, that change is at the very heart of God's project with us. It's what God loves to do with humanity that is broken by sin. The very hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has the power and the desire to change each and every one of us. So the question is, how does that change happen? 
Well, I think it happens in a lot of ways. God uses a lot of different tools, so to speak, to chisel away at us and sand us down. But one of the things we see all throughout the scriptures is that all true biblical change begins with a spiritual awakening. All true biblical change begins with a spiritual awakening. We've already seen this. We saw this last week as we started this this little mini-series on experiencing a spiritual awakening. And last week we saw in the story of Joseph and his brothers, we saw two things really that God began that process of change in them. God will bring about conviction and he will force us to grapple with our guilt. He'll bring us face to face with our sin And we will have to deal with that because the objective in the Christian life is to change from one person to another, and the thing that hinders that is this problem of sin, our rebellion against God. And that's something that every single one of us has to grapple with. The second thing we saw last week in this process of change is that God will will test us. He'll use things in our life to identify and reveal our comprehension. Do we really grasp God's grace? We need to get our sin, but we need to grasp God's grace, that God is willing and able to take us and to mold us and to shape us. He longs to forgive us and to reconcile us. It's what God loves to do. And here, in the next couple of chapters, we see three more ways that God continues this process of transformation. First, I want you to see this, that God transforms us as we experience confession. And here's what we do in this process. We give up to gain. That's what confession is really producing in us. Let's look at chapter 44. The Word of God says this, Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Remember, Joseph is in the process of testing his brothers. They've encountered Joseph, though they don't know it's him. They're having to deal with their conscience. There's been an awakening in their conscience that God has been strategically provoking. They once tried to murder their brother Joseph, and they ended up selling him into slavery. Now Joseph is is the governor of the land, second in command of Pharaoh, and they stand face to face with him as he begins to pull apart their heart and reveal their sin. Verse 3 says, As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now I don't think Joseph is actually practicing divination. I think this is part of his ruse. It's a part of his shtick. He's convinced them that he is this powerful Egyptian leader, when really he's their long-lost brother. It goes on, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Remember that from the previous chapters? How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We also will be the Lord's servants. 
He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Joseph's ploy has been to provoke the conscience of his brothers. He's trying to get them to own their sin, the sin of what they did to Joseph. They rejected Joseph, the chosen younger brother, the one chosen by God. 
They tried to murder him, but instead sold him off into slavery. But now they stand before the the prince of Egypt, and they're going for food. And all Joseph wants to do is to see if these men are the same men they used to be. Or have they changed? And what he's looking for is what we find here. We're We're seeing this confession finally come forward. They had buried their sin in the past, but the guilt of it weighed so heavily upon their consciences. Eventually, through the process that God was working in their hearts through Joseph's plan, these men's conscience can take it no longer, and finally the truth bubbles up to the surface. They're willing to get to the place where they own their sin. And listen, I want to encourage you. If you want to truly experience transformation in your life, you must get to the place where you own your sin. And in Judah, especially Judah, remember sinful Judah in chapter 38? He was probably the worst out of all the brothers, and yet God has so worked in his life that now we come to this man, this man who wouldn't care for his family is now willing to give his life for his family. He owns his sin. He gives up his own life to gain his brother from prison. There are two things that we must do when it comes to our confession and our repentance. We must first acknowledge wrong, and secondly, we must be willing to make it right. And here we see that that's exactly what Judah is willing to do. In fact, verse 16 It begins this this speech from Judah, which actually is the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. And I think Moses, the author of Genesis, is saying, this is something you really need to pay attention to. The guilt that has been found out, it's now risen to the surface. God is finally now repaying us, Judah says, for our sins against Joseph. Notice verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. This has nothing to do with the the, the silver chalice in the sacks of grain. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's broken down and he's confessing fully the guilt their sin against their brother. And I want you to see how he handles himself here. Notice that he doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't blame the other brothers. He doesn't protest in the midst of being found out. He simply acknowledges his wrong. When was the last time you did that with someone else in your life or before God himself? You simply went to somebody in your life because you knew knew that you had sinned against them and you simply just said, I'm wrong, I'm guilty, I did this. When was the last time you went before God and said, God, I, I am in sin, I am wrong, I have no excuse, I have no justification, I'm guilty, I'm guilty before you, I see my guilt, I feel my guilt, I am declaring, I'm confessing my guilt before you, God. God is not looking for some kind of a halfway house confession from his people. You know, a one foot in, one foot out kind of confession. And I think it it serves us well to ask this question. Whenever we confess our sin to others or before God, here's one thing we need to consider. Are we trying to be right with God or are we trying to manage our situation? 
We've seen this in, in high-profile Christian leaders, right, who are caught in grievous sin, who then try to manage the situation. There's all kinds of fluffy language they use, all kinds of excuses being made. You know, you don't understand the stress I was under. You don't understand the circumstances. You don't understand the pain in my own life. You don't understand what somebody else did to me. And we can all be guilty of doing the very same thing when we try to make our confession to others or before God. We couch it in all of this kind of fluffy language, try to give an explanation of our circumstances. Instead, what God is looking is a very simple declaration from us, guilty, guilty. And that's what Judah says. Not only does he own his sin, he's actually willing to make it right. He's willing here to engage in the hard conversation, take notes. He's willing here to, to make recompense where, there's, where it's necessary to repay for the wrongs that he has done. He's willing to pay the price. He's willing to give up. He's willing to give up to gain, listen, a clear conscience. And so let me just ask you, as you just contemplate this passage in the life of Judah, do you want to change? Do you want to be really genuinely transformed? Or maybe perhaps more difficult, do you allow that there are other people in your life that can change? Sometimes it's easier to believe that we can change and harder to believe that somebody else can change. Judah has changed. And he leads the way in confession and then doing whatever is necessary to make it right. I want you to notice as well that he asks for mercy here. And there's two key words that he uses as he walks through his confession and his plea before Joseph. Again, completely still unaware that he's standing before the very one that he sinned against. Two key words kind of leap off the page here. That is the word servant. Maybe in his speech you caught that. He's just constantly saying, your servant, your servant, your servant. Ten times this word servant is used and applied, he applies it to himself. And then 14 times the word father is used. And this is all embedded in this plea that Joseph would be gracious to him and, and that he would be gracious to the Lord's servant for the sake of his father, for my brother. Just two things to grab a hold of here. If you want to change, you need to embrace humility in your life, okay? You need to see yourself as lowly. You need to get your face to the dirt. That's what happens when you see the holiness of God and your, your own personal sinfulness. You see yourself as you really are, somebody who's truly undeserving of God's grace. But I want you to see, too, paired with this, we need to have honor for others and especially for God. Humility and honor are really the key pieces to our confession and to our transformation. When we are humble before others and before God, we can approach them. And when it's our desire to honor God above all else and honor the people we've hurt, we can do what is necessary to make things right. I mentioned this last week, but I, I want to kind of address this because I think it's so important. As we think about reconciliation and and change. That's at the heart of this passage in this section of Scripture. But some of you have been locked in, you know, relational battles for years. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's somebody in this room. Maybe it's your kids or your parents. And the fights just 
they're just constantly there. There's this ongoing tension, and you're constantly pointing out the sins of the other person. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. You need to make things right with me. You need to deal with how you've hurt me. And you're so fixated on how you've been wronged, you cannot see how you have wronged God and the other person in the process. And I'll, I'll confess to you, we all get like this, right? We get so blinded in the midst of our, our relational turmoil and tension. We get emotionally caught up, busy defending our own position, right? We get so clouded in terms of our own sin. The only sin we think we see clearly is the other person's sin. And, you know, Jesus actually has some words about this. He says, listen, before you go and point out the speck of dust in your brother's eye, take out the roof beam that's sticking out of your face, And then he says, when you do that, you want to know why you do that? Because then you'll be able to see clearly the speck of dust in your brother's eye. In other words, he's saying your sin's the bigger issue. And you can't even see the other person's sin clearly because your sin is so big. It's distorting everything in your life. You know what? Isn't that funny, right? Isn't that amazing in our lives? When we actually deal with our sin first, how quickly we realize the other person's offense actually wasn't as big as we thought it was. But we need to be, first of all, convinced that our offense is the biggest offense. I'm the biggest problem in this relationship. And when it comes to you and God, that is certainly the way you need to approach him. God, you have done nothing wrong. You've only ever given me grace. And all I've done in return is rebel against you. Own your sin. It's really interesting in this this long speech that Judah gives, this is the first time in the Bible that one man offers his life for another man. That is so theologically significant. It demonstrates his concern for their father, who he says would surely die if Benjamin did not return with them, but it showed also this willingness to give up his freedom, to give up his own family. Remember, Judah's not a young man. He's got wife and kids and grandkids. I mean, he's got a whole life back home. And he's saying, listen, I will give up everything. I'll give up my freedom. I'll give up my family. I'll give up everything if you would just set free my little brother. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Take me instead. It's not hard here, is it, to see the connection to Jesus, right? I hope you can see that. Judah, though, a guilty sinner, is able to give his life so his brother can go free. How much more Jesus, our perfect, sinless older brother, how much more is he able to give his life for sinners like us? The wonderful truth and the paradox of the Christian life is this, that if you pretend your sin doesn't exist, it will haunt you for the rest of your life, and in the end you will forfeit eternal life. But if you own your sin, if you acknowledge it through confession and repentance, if you grapple with your guilt and you grasp God's grace grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you can actually give up your life in order to gain forgiveness and freedom in Christ. Because Jesus, your older brother will take your sin from you. He will stand in your place as a perfect substitute. He will pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. He himself will do it all. Every time we look at the gospel, we need to be reminded that in love, 
God himself gave up the glories of heaven to gain for you the glories of salvation. Jesus Christ said, there is no greater love than this that a man is willing to give up his life for another. Transformation always comes as a result of confession where we give up to gain. We lay ourselves down in surrender and in sacrifice. Perhaps there has been no change in your spiritual life because you have simply been unwilling to confess your sin. Your pride is getting in the way. You're resistant and you're bucking against what the Spirit of God is trying to produce in your heart, a spiritual awakening to your sin and a drawing to the grace of God and the forgiveness and freedom that he wants you to enjoy. If you today, if you today turn to him and confess your sin, if you repent and believe on Jesus Christ, he offers you freedom and forgiveness, the blessing of God, a clean conscience and renewed strength to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I would urge you today, do not delay. You have one who is willing to give everything to set you free. Would you lay down your life and find that you will gain it in the end? Secondly, we see this transformation comes about through compassion, and the call for us is to glory in God's goodness. Let's read chapter 45 together. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of, all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. 
It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes to his father. He sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler of all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This chapter is filled with unbelievable compassion. Joseph can't take it any longer. He, he sees Judah's plea. He sees his willingness to trade everything for his brother's release. And his heart is just overwhelmed. It's flooded with emotions. He can't keep the ruse up any longer. He has to get it out. So he tells all the Egyptians, get out of here. And he begins to weep. And he declares to his brothers, I, I am Joseph. I'm your brother. The one you, you sold into Egypt. He reveals the truth of his identity in these profound moments. And for his brothers, you'd think, right, this is an awesome moment. Oh, few are brothers alive. But what does the word of God tell us? They're terrified. And rightly so. I remember uh, not long ago watching a series, like some YouTube video, and, um, and in it they were interviewing people on the street, and they were asking them uh, what they thought about Mike Tyson. You know, Mike Tyson at one point, you know, heavyweight boxer of the world, baddest man on the planet. He was ferocious, just a knockout specialist. And, you know, but he's old, right? He's old. You know, he had a tattoo on his face. He was crazy, got it removed, but he's old. And so they're like, what do you think of Mike Tyson? Do you think he's still, you know, is he the baddest man? And, that, you know, people will be, ta- you know, I don't, I think Mike Tyson's washed up. He's a, he's a has-been. I could probably beat him in a fight. And as they're talking, Mike Tyson comes up behind them in the scene. And he li- he's listening to them talk about Mike Tyson. And, and, and all of a sudden, you can see, like, people kind of realize there's somebody over the shoulder, and they turn, and they're staring at the baddest man on the planet. And they start backpedaling like crazy. Like, ah, ah, ah I, I didn't mean that. I mean, I, you, 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 you'd still take me out for sure, yeah. <laughs> the... the uh, <laughs> But there's this, 
There's this sense here in which that's exactly what they're experiencing. The reality of what they have done has just bubbled up to the surface, and now for the first time they realize they're standing in front of the one they have so deeply sinned against. And not only that, he is next to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he, at any moment, could punish them in such severe ways it would make their heads spin. He could lock them up for the rest of their life. He could certainly have them put to death. He could do whatever he wanted. They are at his mercy. And you want to know what he does in the midst of the the, the devastation and the dumbstruck terror that they're experiencing? He shows them mercy. He just pours out compassion. We get this, don't we, that the feeling they must have felt, that the guilt and the shame of sin they must have experienced in that moment? I think we all get this because I don't know, if you're anything like me, and I think you probably are, even in Christ, I've been saved for a lot of years, but there are moments where, you know, in the quietness of my thoughts, my mind, my mind, maybe it's Satan, maybe it's just my own sinful flesh, it goes back to some of the most shameful moments of my life. Things, things I just, I did in my past that I'm ashamed of, that I, I would never want anybody to know about, that I'm just humiliated by, and I'm, I, can't, I can't believe I would do those things. Even as a Christian, sometimes my mind goes back there. Our past has a way of haunting us, doesn't it? In a moment, they can all come flooding back and overwhelm our hearts, and if we're not careful, we can, we can sometimes get so caught in the shame and guilt of our sin that we, 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 we kind of stand before God with the feelings of condemnation instead of realizing that if we're in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. We stand forgiven and free, and yet our hearts don't, often, don't always feel that. We feel the weight of our sin in unique ways. Our sins can, can nag us, kind of like the voice of Joseph must have nagged these men for 20 plus years. The voice of Joseph, their brother, who was in a pit while they ate a, a meal, planning to sell him into slavery as he cried out, don't do this, please don't save me, rescue me, I'm your brother, please, I'm begging you. It ate away at their soul for 22 years. They've lived under the guilt and shame of it. Of having lied to their father about their brother being devoured by wild animals, handing him a piece of his coat that's dipped in the blood of a goat. Like the deception, the lies, the pain they caused their father. Everything is flooding back in in this moment. And they rightly feel a holy terror, a justified terror, dismayed, dumbstruck. The word that's used in this passage here is the very same word in Psalm chapter 2, which is a prophetic messianic psalm in which the psalmist writes these words, then he, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, at the moment of judgment, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That word terrify. In other words, in Psalm 2, 
When unrepentant sinners stand before God one day, and every person will one day stand before God as the judge of the universe, the word of God tells us that terror will overwhelm them. They're going to know in that moment exactly what they've done and who they've done it to. They're going to see their sin in that moment like they've never seen it before, and they're going to see the blazing, holy glory of God that just shines light on the horrendous rebellion of their sin. And in that moment, as they feel the weight of their sin, they're going to understand. Every person who does not repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, every person is going to feel this. I deserve just punishment for my sin. This is the one I have sinned against. I, I, I think we need to kind of process this in relationship to, I think, the unreconciled relationships we have in our life, right? We, we, there's a parallel between being reconciled at a human level and being reconciled at a divine level. And so you need to maybe process this. This is something that needs to just sit for a moment. The greatest problem that you have is not how others have wronged you, but how you have wronged God. The greatest problem you will ever have is not what's been done to you. And, as, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to lack sympathy. Some of you have been deeply hurt by people. You have been horrendously sinned against. And it is unconscionable. It is horrific. And I'm no way minimizing that. But I promise you, the greatest problem and sin that's ever been committed against you, it pales in comparison to the sins you've committed against the holy God. We are all sinners, every one of us, and we've all rebelled against God. The word of God is so clear about this. There are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in light of the the weight of all of this, I need you to, to hear this again. In light of all of your sin and all of the judgment you deserve, you also can come face to face with the compassionate God who forgives sinners. He has made a way to reconcile us to himself. And it wasn't by us earning it. It wasn't by us deserving it. It wasn't by being a better person. It wasn't by going to church enough. It wasn't by giving enough money, being religious enough. It was by no doing of our own. It was all because he loved us so much, he was willing to come from heaven to earth, and he was willing to sacrifice his own life to forgive us and to set us free. And so for some of you today, you need to hear this because you're not reconciled to God. And and right now, if you were to stand before God, you would stand there terrified and justly so. But Psalm 2 goes on to say this, implying that there's something you can do. You know what it says? Kiss the son. Kiss the son. Embrace the son. Grab hold of the son. You don't have to stand in judgment. You can receive the compassion of the Son right here, right now, this very day, if you would humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, if you would confess your sin and embrace by faith Jesus Christ. You're kissing the Son. He's so gentle to them in this passage. Isn't it amazing? They're they're in fear. Do you notice what he says to them? I love this. Come near to me. Everything in their hearts is trying to get away. They're like, no, I can't be near this. I'm dead. He's going to kill us. And he's like, come near to me. 
He's so kind. He's so compassionate in this moment. Instead of holding a grudge against our sin, our God holds out the goodness of forgiveness. It's such a profoundly beautiful passage. And he goes on in verse 5. Did you, did you notice what kind of undergirds this compassion and forgiveness? Verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you see? the profound, practical nature of believing the sovereignty of God in your life. I mean, it it, it literally bleeds into every area of your life, including your broken relationships, your unreconciled relationships. Your ability to forgive is dependent upon your understanding of the sovereignty of God because you believe whatever has been done to you has all been done under the sovereign, providential hand of God, and God is working his great providential purposes out in those moments, even, yes, of pain and suffering. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Joseph is not relieving his brothers of their responsibility for their sinful activity. They are guilty. And yet, even as they face their own guilt, they're standing face to face with his compassion and comfort. Joseph has seen that the character of his brothers has changed from selfishness to sacrifice. If you want to forgive others in your life, you need to adopt the Lord's perspective on what's going on in your life. Good theology is the basis for good relationships. You'll notice that he goes on to talk about in verse 6 and 7 that God has done this to keep alive many survivors, a remnant. God has always had this plan to save a people for himself. That phrase, to keep alive many survivors, really interesting. In the book of Genesis, it's only used in two other places. It's used in Genesis 6, verse 20, where the Lord is telling Noah to build an ark to keep many people alive. It's also used in Genesis 19, 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God is bringing Lot out of Sodom to keep him and his daughters alive. And now, adding to this pattern here, that the salvation of Joseph's brothers by means of Judah's self-sacrificial substitutionary offering of himself and by means of the beloved son whom they thought was dead but is actually alive is now extending forgiveness to them and is keeping them alive. If it's not clear to you yet, this is exactly the way God speaks of the salvation that he brings about through Christ. Jesus speaks about the destruction of the ungodly in terms of the flood. He speaks of the the, the destruction of the ungodly in terms of the judgment of Sodom in the Gospels. And through Jesus, our compassionate brother who interceded for us and gave himself in our place, our brother who though was thought to be dead is alive. And he's ready to forgive the rebels 
That's the salvation being anticipated here all the way back in the very first book of the Bible. A salvation that finds its culmination and fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the cross. A salvation that we enjoy today. And I just wonder, can you just take a moment to consider the compassion of God toward you today? And don't rush past it. Just simply glory in God's goodness to you. How awesome and how good is our God? Forgiveness and and reconciliation, they're just so glorious. We need to learn to glory in God's goodness more than we do. That is what enables us to then extend the same kind of compassion and kindness to others. When we realize what God has given us, it radically impacts what we're willing to extend to others. Brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven and reconciled. We were those who were far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Kiss the Son. I think, by the way, Psalm 2, when it says, kiss the Son, I think that the psalmist is actually drawing upon this account with Joseph. The brothers who once hated him and rejected him now embrace him And and the result is so powerful in this passage. As a result of embracing and being embraced by the son who was dead but now alive, they get all the blessings of the son. Did you see that? They get everything that he has. He's like, just just leave all your crap. That's why I said crap in a sermon. Leave it all back there. Who cares about it? It's broken down. It's beat down. I've got everything for you here, and it's better than you could ever imagine. It's mine to give, and I give it freely all to you. This is exactly what Jesus Christ does for all his children, isn't it? Come to me. Leave your life behind. Leave everything that you've been clinging to behind. Leave your past life. Leave your possessions. Do not cling to them any longer because what I have for you, the blessings in store for you are so much better. It's so awesome. Look forward. Forget what lies behind. He sends them back to their father Jacob and And he brings about this beautiful restored fellowship. Verse 10, I love, there's just so much in here. If I was smart, I wouldn't be preaching this much in one sermon. He's saying, you shall be near me, verse 10. Do you see it? You shall be near me. It's the presence, it's the proximity, it's the reconciliation, it's the restoration, it's the new life that he's offering them. They're going to enjoy everything, everything. All the best of Egypt is theirs including the forgiveness of their brother. And don't you love this? He sends them back on their way, and as they depart, he sends them, do not quarrel on the way. What do you think they'd be talking about on the way back to dad? (laughs) I I told you you shouldn't have done it. This is your idea, right? This is you. (laughs) He's like, listen, listen. You're going to go back, you're going to talk to dad, you're going to have to tell him the truth. It's all going to come out. But I'm telling you right now, listen, don't you be blaming anybody. You're you're all responsible, but here's where you live. You don't live anymore in the condemnation of your conscience. You live in the compassion of your brother. That's where you stay. It's glory in my goodness. Glory in my goodness to you. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord... I just, I want to plead with you to hear the words of Psalm 2. Would would you kiss the son today? 
Would you leave your life behind? Would you see there's so much more for you in Christ? That the God of this universe, he loves you. He created you to know him, to come near to him. You're far off right now because of your sin, but if you come to him, he can remove that. He can take your sin and he can cast it as far as the east is from the west. Oh, why? Because he can take it upon himself and he can make the payment in full. He can remove the very thing that separates you from the blessings of the God of the universe and he can give you in his son every good and perfect blessing and gift. It's for you. It's for you. Nothing better than being reconciled to God and experiencing his compassion. And when you have that, you can live now with a new confidence in your life. And he offers us finally here, God transforms us as we experience confirmation, grab hold of God's guarantee. We're not going to read this entire chapter. I just want to read a snippet. It's, it's long genealogy in the middle section there. But I do want to read the very beginning, it says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent, set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. And then he gives this long list of these sons, and it ends in verse 27 with this. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. It's hard, it's hard to imagine how unfathomable this is for Jacob, not only to hear that his son, his beloved son, is alive, but now that he's being told to leave the land of Canaan, the, the promised land. This was the, the promised land where he was supposed to enjoy the presence of God. And we need to just really quickly back up and remember the bigger picture of the, the land of promise. We saw this at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. When God created the world, he created it as a, a kind of cosmic temple. The Garden of Eden was like the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled in a unique and palpable way. Adam and Eve were driven out of the, the garden, the, the first land, so to speak, out of God's presence because of their sin, and now, as the story has unfolded up to this point, God has promised to Abraham and to his seed that he is going to give them the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan, it's like a, a reiteration of Eden. It's like a second Eden, like a redo. Because the idea is that in the land, they will once again enjoy the very presence of God. They will be with God. He will dwell with them. 
And so to descend into Egypt was like leaving the place of life, right? The presence of God, the blessings of God, that's where life is. And it's like going into the unclean realm of the dead. It's like we're going backwards here. It seems contrary to God's plan and God's promise. And so God gives him this confirmation. Notice first that Abraham offers sacrifices to God. And here he's being identified with Abraham, who back in chapter 21 did the very same thing. And Isaac, his father, back in chapter 26, who did the same thing. They're worshiping God as a statement of their faith in God. God, I don't quite see the end here. I don't know what you're doing, but I will follow you. Now, Jacob is is making it clear that he has faith in the God of his fathers, that his sin has been forgiven. That's the worship kind of process here. And he will fully follow God wherever he leads. And God then confirms his faith by giving him a vision, visions. And in these visions, God speaks to him and he gives confirmation of this covenant that he has made all the way back with Abraham and Isaac and he's inviting Jacob now to grab hold of the guarantee. I said I would make you a great nation. I said that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You can trust me. And God says to him in these moments, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. I'm going to do my work there. I will accomplish my plan through this, Jacob. Follow me, obey me, trust me. And our fears, listen, we know this, right? Our fears can often prevent us from following God. And we need to hear these words. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. The confidence of this confirmation the same for him as it is for us. I will be with you. What is this plan that God has? Well, ultimately, this plan is to create a people, a holy nation that is devoted to him, who will be used by him to then reach the world. And we're given this genealogy here, and I just want to highlight one thing as we close our time together. We're given a list of 70 sons and grandsons. That's what we have really in this genealogy. Seven times 10, especially in Genesis, but throughout the Bible, it's giving this this picture of completion, fullness. What we have here is not an exhaustive list of every person who came down into Egypt. In fact, it's likely that there are thousands of people who are traveling with him. Remember Abraham? Remember the size of of his people? He had an army of like 300 men. He had had a large village essentially attached to him. Well, that's, that's now Jacob. So why, why end on verse 27 by drawing our attention to this number of 70? There's one other prominent place that the number 70 finds itself in the book of Genesis. And if you remember, if you were here long enough, I think it's been a little while, but the number 70 comes to our attention back in Genesis chapter 10. Chapter 10 is right before chapter 11. I think you got that. But it's backwards. And what it's describing is the, the table of nations is what it's referred to. And there, if you, if you add up the nations that were dispersed after the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, you find that it adds up to 70 nations. 
And there, like here, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a picture of completion. It's a picture of the entirety of the world that is being dispersed and sent out. And it's no mistake that right after chapter 10 and 11, when the 70 nations, the whole world is kind of scattered, so to speak, made into nations that are given over to Satan, who is the ruler of this world, that the very next chapter, God calls a man by the name of Abraham, and he makes him a promise, I will make of you a great nation. And here, we are being brought back into this idea that what God is doing in this family is he is reconciling them and he is recreating them. They are becoming a kind of new creation through whom God is going to make a nation of people who is going to reach out to be a light to the nations. And we know, we know that Israel will never fulfill what God calls them to fulfill. They will never be a light to the nations like they're supposed to be. In fact, more than anything, they'll embrace the gods of the nations, they'll rebel against God, and they themselves too will need someone to come and rescue them. We know that that person is Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who will look like Joseph, the Son of God, sent as the Savior of the world. There is no greater confirmation that you can have than Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. He was crucified, risen, and exalted to the right hand of the Father, and one day he will come back soon. Grab hold of God's guarantee. Grab hold of Jesus by faith and watch God continue to transform you from one degree of glory to the next. If you're in Christ today, listen, you are a new creation. And we, the church, are called a holy nation, the family of God reconciled by the Son of God, and we are sent out by our King on mission to go out and make disciples of all nations. And the confirmation and confidence we have is that we do not need to be afraid because our King Jesus goes with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, we praise you. We praise you for your faithfulness to us. We praise you for the way you transform and change us, that you make us new. You expose our sin and our rebellion, but you come to us with such compassion and grace. God, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with all that you are and all that you've done for us. God, I pray that our hearts would be filled with such conviction today, a conviction about God, what you've called us to, who you've called us to be, that we would have such confidence, Lord, that you you, Jesus, you're our guarantee. You've given to us the, your spirit. You are with us always, even to the end of the age. God, would you find us faithful? And would you keep transforming us, keep changing us, Lord? Make us like our Savior, we pray. Transform us from one degree of glory to the next. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.